Welcome to Electricians and Mad Men. I'm Ian Gorman. My guest today is Anthony Gravino, an independent engineer, producer, and musician from Chicago, Illinois. Anthony does tracking, mixing, and mastering, working in a wide range of genres, including rock, jazz, folk, and R&B. A go-to collaborator for some of the most skilled and creative musicians in the city, his credits include the Claudettes, Davey Knowles, Hood Smoke, Bunny Patootie, and Matt Ullery. Anthony also has a lot of sonic ties to Michigan, including mastering albums for Red Tail Ring, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Stephen Lynch, and my own group, the Red Sea Pedestrians. We talked in February 2018 at his private studio, The Drake, nestled into a quiet neighborhood in Logan Square. I'm from a town that you've probably never heard of called Monmouth, Illinois. Were you into music and sound back then? I was into music there. Uh, not so much sound and recording, although I did make technically my first multi-track recording there, bouncing from I had this little boom box that had two cassette decks in it, and it had a mic, and you could record onto one tape and then play that back into the other tape and then also record the mic at the same time. So you could, like, what I would do is... I would play a rhythm guitar part and then I would overdub a solo when I was 14 or 15 years old. I started playing guitar when I was about 13. With, with two boom boxes just hooked One up boom together. box One boom with box. two with two decks in it. Oh, and you could add the mic while dubbing from one deck to the next. Correct. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> did you go to school for music at all, or, or did you learn yourself socially or from records? I never went to school for music. Um, I took a few music classes in college for fun, um, but it was mostly like history, music history stuff. Mm-hmm. I just learned from um, from playing practicing a lot from my friends who were also musicians and uh you know from reading i used to you know started out with reading guitar magazines and then as i got older when i got into recording then i would read a lot about recording and on the internet there's so much information you know and so it's i no formal education really how did you get involved in running sound and engineering for bands well i Originally, I can about 2004, I bought a Pro Tools rig. Uh, I'd been in a band that, that got to work with some, a couple really great producers, and it kind of inspired me to try to learn more about it, because before that, I had really kind of bad experiences with engineering and stuff like that. So I bought this little Pro Tools rig, and I started um, recording just my own kind of little demos of my songs, and I would invite my I was playing a lot of music then in bands and stuff and so I would always invite my musician friends over to just play on my things you know and actually uh Michael Kasky he's one of the first guys that came over and and would record with me and I and then uh, after a while you know people would just I'd give them something well here's the thing we worked on you know and they you know people were like oh that sounds really good yeah you kind of you know you kind of know what you're doing or whatever. And I didn't even really think about the engineering very much at that point. I was just thinking about it like a creative thing. And, and then a band was kind of in a, in a tough spot and they had a deadline and they had a problem with this engineer. And they said, how about if you record, um, our album for us, we really need it done fast and we'll pay you some money. And that was how I got started. Then, so I recorded that album and then, uh, 
you know, one thing led to another and somebody, you know, in the band hired me to do their, actually everybody in that band ended up hiring me to do other records and people heard the record that I did for them and started calling me. And the next thing I knew, I just had, you know, a pretty good amount of people asking me to record. And uh, I'd never really thought about doing it professionally. It wasn't really a goal, but once I started doing it and I realized, oh, I really like this, you know, this is like a, a, another creative outlet through music that is a, a really powerful thing, you know. Then I started, you know, collecting gear and trying to learn more about it and geek out on it more. Um, so it was it was kind of by accident, to be quite honest. So you kind of jumped right into working for bands. You didn't really come up in sort of the traditional intern assistant kind of no. studio world, huh? No, I mean, I... I I think I, the the first stuff I learned about recording was just because I was in a band that was working in a s- studios with, uh, you know, with engineers. But that was Oh My God, right? Uh, no, that was actually before Oh My before God. Oh my yeah, this was actually this band Temple of Low Men from Champaign, Illinois. And we worked with um, a guy named John Pines and another guy named Adam Schmidt. And they were just super talented guys, very different, but both with really great skills and creative. And John had a great studio and a ton of old cool gear. He still has it actually. And he was just, he was a really like, he'd come up in the golden age of engineering and he had really good engineering chops. And, and Adam's just a really super creative guy. He's a great musician who also had really good engineering chops. And um, just working with those guys really, you know, uh, got me excited about it because before that I'd recorded stuff and I'd always been disappointed with the way it came out and I didn't really know why. And then when I worked with them and I'd see that they were doing things that were much more like outside of the box and creative than I ex- would have expected, you know, and I, that's sort of when I thought, Oh, okay, I see. There's this whole other art of this. That's just the same as like playing a guitar or playing a, an instrument or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, I got I got excited about it, and that's when I bought that little rig, and and then a few years had you know maybe a couple of years after I got the rig is when I started getting gigs to record, and it's just kind of you know gone where it's gone from there. Yeah. So coming from engineering from such a musician standpoint, how do you feel like that influences your style or your approach to sessions and the way you put stuff together like that? I think that it makes me focus on performance more and uh, I'm more interested in in performance and getting good sounds out on the floor and getting like a vibe between people happening as opposed to I'm not really big on like changing things a ton later on in the process. I guess that's that would be the way that it is. I'm all about creating something in the moment. And of course you can enhance it later and do things, but I want to feel it right away. Mm-hmm. I don't want to leave and say, Oh, we'll figure out how to make that sound cool later. Like I can't, I can't visualize things that way. I need to just like hear it and go yes or no. Yeah. And I think that, that probably, you know, but I think a lot of engineers think like that and you know, maybe that's a product of being a musician. I just, I didn't, you know, like you said, I didn't have like formal training. Nobody like, you know, took me through all the steps. I just kind of like figured it out and kind of probably bobbed and weaved a lot. And, um, it definitely has probably led me to do things a little differently, I think, you know, and kind of figure out my own way, you know, whereas some people learn a technique from somebody and kind of just use that. I kind of just had to 
figure it out more, which mm-hmm. I think is common these days because there's less of the sort of mentoring, like what you went through and stuff, you know, and you went mm-hmm. to, you went to school for it, you I know, did, yeah. and that's a totally different thing. You know, I think I wish I, <laughs> I wish I, I wish I, I didn't know I wanted to do this when I was going to college or else I probably would have tried to do something like that because I wasn't really interested in going to school for music. It just seemed like that, that what they teach you in school for music, it didn't have anything to do with what I wanted to do musically, you know? Tell me about the guys that were your mentors early on that you were referring to that uh, worked with your band. Like what, what were the kind of things that they were doing that really attracted you to the idea of being behind the board? Um, just like, you know, they would, they would distort things crazy or they would, you know, super compress something or, you know, uh, I remember uh, like Adam one time we were working and he would, he would take a delay pedal and he would send the vocal into the delay pedal and then run that into a wah-wah pedal and sit there and work the wah-wah pedal and like the, the repeats on the delay at the same. I remember just thinking like, yeah, this is cool. Like, and it sounded really cool. What, you know, the effect that it had was really cool. And, you know, just stuff like that, just stuff that I'd never really, you know, thought about. Oh, yeah, there's all this little nuance. And then you start hearing it on records and you go, oh, okay, I see. And none of it's maybe prominent, but it all kind of adds up to this thing, you know. And they would do like a lot of subtle automation and just just really taking something from being like, oh, that's pretty good to being like, damn, (laughs) you know, that just like doesn't let up the whole right. time, you know. Making something special. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and they and they would spend a lot of time, you know, on a, on a one sound, you know, like to get it just right. Well, I I feel like these days when so many people have access to the same collection of plugins and a lot of them are using the same tools that uh the ability to create something really special and one of a kind for certain records and sounds is a huge draw to people from a creative standpoint. I think so. I mean, I, some people I don't think think about that, but I think the people that I want to work with tend to think like that, tend to want to do things like slightly differently. And I think, you know, I've, I've never, I, when I started working like with those guys and it, it, there was no, they didn't use Pro Tools. This was like kind of, the Pro Tools was around, but that's not how we were doing it. We were doing it on like, HD 24s and but it was a very much an analog even though it was recorded in digital you were still everything you were doing to the sound after that was done in analog you know so we were working on consoles with analog and outboard gear and I just got used to that I guess and so I, I mean I use plugins here and there now and they're useful but it's not most of what I do is not with plugins and I, and I think it's as much I mean they, there's a different sound obviously and I get I'm used to that but there's a tactile nature to the analog equipment that just allows me to more quickly and accurately get things where I want it. Well, I, I know that in addition to working here at your place, the Drake, uh, which is incredibly decked out with all this amazing gear all around us, uh, you also do a lot of work at Shirk Studios? Yeah, yeah. That's kind of my my home away from home here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great studio owned by a, a great guy, Steve Shirk. Um he's you know took it over like four or five years ago and really turned it into an awesome place they've got this great sphere console and he's got a lot of cool outboard gear he's got a great mic collection um and uh, i just have he's got a 16 track mci two inch machine and 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 he keeps the place like everything works (laughs) you go there and it's like 
the place works. Everything works. And, uh, you know, it's affordable for, for bands and, um, yeah, I, I love working there. I mean, I'd work there more if, if the more people had the budget to like, you know, go from start to finish in records there. I end up doing a lot of things where I'll start a record there, get the kind of band tracked there because it's bigger space. And I, I track bands here, but there are just certain things that just don't make sense in here. And, uh, and then I usually come back here and kind of do all the rest of the stuff and finish it. Um, but mm-hmm. Steve's studio is great. I, I love Shirk Studios. I've never been there, but the pictures I see are, are just awe-inspiring. I should introduce yeah. you guys. You'd love Steve. Yeah. He's great. And actually, he's been he's been having me master some stuff for him lately, which is really nice because he he's really good at production. Like his his records sound good, and so you get it's always fun to get you know something that already sounds really good, and then you just get to like master it and go, oh yeah, just tweak it, and then you're like, look, this sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Jumping over the problem-solving area and getting right to the fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. You recently started a, a solo project at Shirt, didn't you? If I saw that online, I didn't start it there. I it's um I did uh, some recording at Shirks for an album of my own music that I'm working on. Um, yeah, that was a really fun day. That was like one of the most fun music days I've had in a long time because I didn't have to engineer <laughs> and I just got to work with these three fantastic musicians. It was Michael Kasky, who you know, uh, my friend Ian Shepard, who lives in Champaign, who's a fantastic drummer, and uh, Brian Doherty, who's in the band Hood Smoke, who's an amazing bass player and songwriter and singer. And we just got together, and Steve Shirk engineered and took all that off of my plate, and uh, it was great. I mean, we had a blast. And then I had, like, these little kids come in and, and sing a gang vocal. And then I had all my bunch of my friends come in and sing this big gang vocal. And we kind of just turned it into a party at the end of the day. So, Oh, man. <laughs> I, I wish every day in the studio was like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know about you, but for me, as much as I love engineering, it's hard for me to do that and play at the same time. Like, even just beyond the actual juggling of the tasks, it's, it's like different parts of my brain somehow, you know, like playing my guitar and... And getting a guitar tone are kind of two different things. Do, do you find it easy or challenging to like work on your own material like that? Very challenging. Very challenging. I, I don't like to record myself. And I, I mean, you know, if you're cutting vocals or whatever and you just got to sit there and kind of, you know, and I kind of know how to get the vocal sound that I want already. But if there's any kind of mystery about the sound going in, I feel like I can't sit there and play and be objective and you can go back and forth and listen and tweak a little bit and listen and tweak, but it's ultimately you've only got two hands and two ears and one brain, you know? And it, like you said, it is kind of two different modes of thinking. So the, the, the more I go on, the more I'm re- I realize how important it is to separate the two. I used to think, oh, I just do it all myself and, you know, I've got all this gear and I can, I can do it. But also, I just don't have as much fun. I don't really have any fun. I'm just like stressed and feeling like both things are getting slightly compromised sometimes, you know? Like I'm not performing as well as I could because I keep having to think about like dealing with all the little technical stuff and maybe I'm not getting as good as sounds is because I can't like hear while it's going down and, you know, can't tweak things in real time while somebody's playing. So I've kind of, that was sort of one of the reasons why I decided to go to shirks there were three more songs that i wanted to cut that i tried to do like me engineering and playing with other people and it just like for various reasons hadn't come together and so 
yeah, I just said, oh, all right, Steve, let me give me a day with you, and you know, we'll sort it out. And it was great. Sweet. Any uh, ETA on when that might come out, or is it uh, be uh, done when it's done, kind of thing? I this year, I'll, I'll put I'll put that out there. It will be out this year. Sweet. Uh, I was hoping to have it done in the spring, but I think that that might be a little lofty of a goal because basically because I just got too busy doing other people's records. <laughs> You know, I know that in addition to engineering, you've done a lot of production with bands and that sort of thing, too. I'm always curious how people approach the line between production and engineering or like what your role, you know, is it the kind of thing where you establish your role at the beginning of a project or it's kind of meld or? You know, every project is different, I would say. Sometimes, sometimes I just get hired to sort of engineer a record and just... I always think I'm producing in my head, like because uh, because if I go into a session, I'm and I'm gonna make musical suggestions, which is essentially producing. If you're just engineering, you're not making musical. You're not saying maybe play the that part or maybe play that. You know what I mean? You're just like capturing and getting the sounds and doing that. You know, the minute you go, oh, maybe you should try this that musical idea. That's producing, right? And and really, it's like the line is pretty blurred. Uh, so there've been times when I've gone into a record and it's just like, okay, you're going to engineer. And then clearly I'm doing production stuff. And usually when that happens at the end of it, the person's like, yeah, you definitely are a co-producer or producer on this album. You know, I've had dead several records like that where I didn't, it certainly wasn't discussed and I didn't get paid for it, but you know, um, and then there's other albums where it's just like, people are like, yeah, we want you to produce the record. We want you to, you know, come in and and really help us mold these songs and guide the process. And, um, I, I don't, I don't have as much trouble doing both of those things at the same time. I, in fact, I kind of see, I find that I want to do both at the same time because they're kind of connected to me. Um, so yeah, I, I, like I said, I always kind of approach it just like, I'm producing, even if I know I'm not. <laughs> well, you've also worked with a lot of artists multiple times on, you know, strings of projects. Yeah. And uh, I would imagine that that relationship develops over those collaborations, too. And, and the better you get to know each other and what kind of sounds or ideas the artist you're working with likes, it probably opens those doors wider for more collaborations. No, no question about it. Yeah, actually, tonight I'm recording with an artist and I think this is the eighth record that we've done together. Wow. Um, yeah, I have done a lot of records, multiple records with people and, and it definitely gets easier. I think the trust factor gets a lot greater. You can just kind of hit the ground running with that trust at the beginning of the project without having to like feel each other out and kind of, you know, sometimes you, you gotta be a little careful sometimes when you first meet people and work with them cause you don't want to offend their sensibilities or anything like that, but you still want to assert yourself. Whereas if you've done two records with somebody and you're gone the third, it's like, okay, I know what to do. Yeah, it's it's like being in a band with someone. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I've come to know you primarily through your mastering work for me and a lot of other bands around Michigan. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and your multi-track and mixing work I know more secondhand from your records and the work that you've done. But I'm curious about some things from your perspective as a mastering engineer. You see so many projects come in. Are, are there things that you can point to that are things that make your life easier coming down the the pike from the, the mixing engineer? Like, are, are there certain mixing techniques or ideas or things that 
that you'd like to see or ones that may, make you kind of go, oh boy, when they come in? Well, yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that makes my life difficult sometimes is just that when things are already sort of quote unquote mastered and they come in and it's like, it doesn't happen too often, but once in a while I'll get one and it's just like, well, this has already been compressed to hell. And like, what am I going to do from here? You know what I mean? Um, that's definitely a problem. I leaving headroom and mastering, you know, a good mix engineer will leave headroom. You don't, and they'll know that they don't need to make it loud right then and there and to leave that for the mastering. Um, I just, are you talking straight up like peak limiting? People I'm just are talking about just like just, yeah, just like or they're just squashing it. Both. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard for me to know sometimes. I, I mean, a little bit of peak limiting is no big deal. But I'm talking about like I'm getting something that's already like I can't make this any louder without doing you know like making it sound crazy. Um, the other thing I think is, you know, there's a lot of different sort of taste as far as like oh how bright or how dark or how you know whatever something is, but it's like, to me, what's important is, it is does everything make sense with everything else in the mix? Because then from a mastering standpoint, if somebody wants it a little brighter, you can do that and everything's going to get a little brighter and it's going to work. Uh, I think where it becomes a problem is like, sometimes you'll get, I'll get a mix and it'll sound pretty good, but like one element of it will be really bright compared to everything else let's just say and it's like i want to brighten the whole thing up a little bit because maybe the symbols are a little dull and maybe i just want to like give it a little more kind of width and 3d but when i just crack the eq open all of a sudden that vocal just gets harsh or whatever it is you know or those symbols just get harsh and it kind of limits you know because it's just like that it's frustrating when there's that one thing in the mix that just like won't let you do what you want to do because it's sort of from an EQ standpoint, out of balance with everything else. And what I like is when things sort of feel cohesive and no one thing is excessively too much low end or too much high end. And that allows you to do some little tweezing and tweaking and, and bring out the best in the mix. Whereas sometimes there's that element that just holds you back from being able. Especially if it's a vocal, that's got to be frustrating, you yeah. know, because you got to kind of make all your decisions around the vocal exactly you know? that's why i use that yeah. as an example too because yeah. that's the one where it's like oh i can't do that because i'm gonna ruin the vocal if i do that you know and of course that's the most yeah. important thing do you ever take the kind of approach of making suggestions to a mix engineer of things to change or, or do you feel like your job is to work with what they give you it depends on who it is you know uh some of the mix engineers who send me stuff to master actually will sometimes in the course of the mixing process send me a mix and say hey what do you think about this is this like gonna be cool like what would you do what is this something am i missing here you know and i like that i don't mind that at all i'm, I'm happy to give my uh my two cents if i, I it's not something i really want to do unless they're soliciting it from me or i hear something that's just like wow that's way out of whack that might be worth going back and exploring you know i'd and every relationship is a little different. There's some people where I'd feel totally comfortable doing that. And some people where I'd just be like, oh, I don't know what they're going to think if I say that. So maybe I won't, you know, but ultimately if I think something is, is awry, <laughs> I will say something because, you know, you got to try to make the thing sound as good as you can. And sometimes, you know, there's only so much you can do with a two track 
and some EQs and some compressors and you know stuff like that. You can't you can't turn you know everything up and down necessarily. You know, <laughs> make everything louder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about mastering projects that you also tracked and mixed? Is that a different thing than mastering something that comes in the door fresh? I mean, it's to be honest. I know some people will probably think this is like backwards and and whatever, but it's easier. It's easier for me because I already know what I want. And I do, I mix a lot to quarter inch tape. That's another thing you were asking me what, what makes things easier in mastering. Stuff that was either tracked to or mixed to tape behaves better mm. in general. It's just, it's just a little easier to deal with. It doesn't have the spiky stuff and it just, it just behaves better. I don't know. It's, a lot of things probably contributing to that, but um, so yeah, when I when I mix something, usually I mixed a quarter inch, and I've spent a lot of time on the mix, and I really like the way the mix sounds, and I'm just doing a little subtle enhancement at the end and trying to get the volume up to whatever level I think is appropriate for the music, and um, I really enjoy mastering stuff that I that I've worked on. Um, and and I, I like doing other stuff too. It's just it's, sometimes stuff comes in and it's it's less clear in my mind what the vision is. That that you know what I mean. It's, and sometimes you can kind of go, wow, what what am I supposed to do? Whereas like with something that I mixed and I worked with the band and I know what they want. It's like I know exactly what I'm going to do in mastering. I'll listen back and I'm like, oh maybe it's a little dull. I'll put a little twenty k on there. Or, you know maybe I'll cut a little some low mids or something. I know that you use a lot of tape. I mean, obviously, there's that beautiful Mara machine sitting right <laughs> by us there, and you're talking about printing to that. Do you track to to 2-inch, too? You mentioned that Shirk has a 16-track uh, 2-inch. Yeah. How, I, how do you like to incorporate tape? I I like to track to 2-inch 16-track at Shirk's. <laughs> that's, that's a good sound. Um, mm-hmm. It's not right for every project uh, because of money, and I'm just – sometimes it's just, you know <sighs> – if you're going to have to do a lot of editing and stuff like that, I mean, you can always dump, you know, off the tape into Pro Tools, but the way that I work there, I have to like separately dump it in. And so it does take more time to, to play it back and dump it in. So if you're going to be having to do like 10 takes of something and then edit between 10 takes, probably the tape is not the way to go. You know, if you've got a band that can probably get it in four or five takes, sure. I'll do tape, you know, that, that it, and and also style of music, I think, you know, it's noisy, you know, 15 IPS tape has some hiss. It's probably not what I would use to record like, you know, classical instruments, but like a rock band or like, you know, anything with guitars, electric guitars. Um, I mean, it, it just helps. It just automatically gives you this sort of sound that is a little more cohesive. And so I really like doing it. Um, I haven't haven't done one on the 16 track for a while but i've i've done probably i don't know 10 15 records like that over there something like that do you stay on tape or do you mix in pro tools or um what kind I, of workflow yeah i don't usually stay on tape there's this one guy well i did a record with this guy davy knowles uh and it was just it was a it was a he played a 1932 national guitar and sang we went out to this cabin and i took this little revox a77 out there and just recorded it onto that and then mixed off of that. So that that record, I stayed on tape. And then there's this other guy who I work with who has this um, 
it's like this portable half inch eight track machine. It's a Revox. I think it's a C278 or something like that. Really cool tape deck. Really, really cool. Great sounding machine. And we take that around and record people kind of on location. He does a lot of like jazz music. And, um, and then we'll mix straight off the tape. He'll bring the machine over here and we'll hook it up into my patch bay and, you know, mix on the console over to my MCI. And, um, that's, that's cool. Usually when I, you know, at Shirks, unfortunately, I don't usually get to like start and finish the project there. It's usually, you know, we got a couple days there and I don't have a, a multi-track machine here. So usually I end up dumping in and working off Pro Tools and then mixing back to tape at the end. And, but I love to master straight off the quarter inch. I do think that has a thing. <laughs> I, I, I've done some tests and it's just like the playback of the thing straight off the analog compared to even the playback of the print through the analog back into Pro Tools, you know, where it's hit the tape and then gone into Pro Tools, the straight analog playback is palpably superior. Wow. Yeah. I know that you do a, a lot of projects that end up going to vinyl. Does that change the way you mix or master when you know that the vinyl is kind of the main thing on that project? Um, not really. No. What I will give the vinyl mastering engineer is often not the same thing that the digital master will be. Um, usually what I do is what I do this, even when I'm not mastering a project that's going to go to vinyl, but when I'm mastering, what I'll do is I'll print two versions of the master. One of them goes through the analog chain and a few peak limiting plugins. And one of them skips the plugins and just goes, it's just the straight print. And, uh, what, what I found, I've worked, I work with this mastering engineer in Nashville, Cameron Henry. We do, uh, we did some tests. We, you know, I took several times, took files down there and had the one with the limiting and the one without. And the vinyl just likes the more dynamic <laughs> stuff better. He could explain it a lot better than I can. But, um, yeah, I just found that, that the, it's just like punchier when you use the less compressed thing on the vinyl and it just sounds cooler. Um, so usually I'll deliver, you know, a different master for the vinyl mastering as opposed to the uh, digital master which is a little more compressed but it doesn't really change the way that i um i approach like the production or the mix i mean i guess if i was doing a record that just like they were making me put like a shitload of low end on everything you know mm -hmm. then i might start thinking about that because you know you can't you can't put as much low end on vinyl as you can digital it just won't that the needle will skip you know and the vinyl and the, the mastering engineer will just cut it you know because they'll have to because they won't be able to keep the needle in the groove when they're trying to cut the the lacquer um and so yeah it doesn't really affect it i mean i've, I've had very good experiences with, with welcome to 1979 in nashville doing the vinyl mastering i mean every time i got i get a record actually i just got one the other day every time I get a record that they did, it just sounds good to me. You know, it doesn't sound the same. I mean, vinyl changes the sound of things, but it's all there as far as I'm concerned. You know, like it's getting me off the same way the digital one, sometimes mm -hmm. more, you know, like it has yeah. a thing. So I don't, I don't think I really changed my approach. I don't really think about it like that. So you, you had mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of times when you work at, 
shirt or you know that sort of thing you're doing multiple days do you have an opinion on whether you prefer like large lockout type sessions like that or do you, like more like evening here and there sessions is there a difference that you notice in running sessions like that um <clears throat> i i do like getting a little momentum going and i feel like when you can get multiple days in a row you can get some momentum going i mean partly just logistically speaking because you're set up and you're and everything's all hooked up and so you don't have to spend that time once you get into the studio on day one, you get everything set up and mic'd and you get some sounds and you got some stations set up. And it's like, then if you need to do something, it's like the station is just ready and the headphones are ready and everybody, you know, consoles all taped and routed and busts and everything. And so I do like trying to get a few days in a row after the sort of inception of everything. And once you get the kind of big picture then i'm more apt to be like yeah let's just like cut some vocals on tuesday and maybe then the week after that we'll get together and somebody else will come over and you know uh, ultimately i i mean if it were really up to me i would probably just try to just like go like you know two weeks and finish a record you know that sounds like a good way to make albums to me but a lot of times the people that i work with are just so busy and they're gigging and they're you know, and they and they don't have like a label necessarily with a big budget paying for the money. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, it's just not possible. But but when we're going into the studio, I always try to say, can we at least get like two or three days, you know, just so we can make sure that we have time to get everything. And most artists want, probably want to do more. They just can't afford it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and some can. And so, you know, I've had few experiences where it's like, yeah, we're going to lock the studio out for... 10 days and go record like 95% of the record. And that has a thing to it. You know, you get this, you get this momentum, you get this moment, you get, it's, it's just different, you know? Using the word moment is really interesting to me because it seems like people really love when their albums have a, like a sense of time and place somehow, like a, you know, a capturing of where they were artistically or emotionally or, or whatever. And if you do things very piecemeal, it's very hard to capture that. You know, it's a funny thing to try to make you feel like it's people in a room playing together at a point in time if there is no point in time. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I do like that just like feeling of humans playing together. I like to try to capture as much live stuff as I can. Even if I'm in overdub mode, I want to get like two people doing overdubs at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, I was I was cutting some guitars here the other day. Had these two guitar players in here playing on my record, and uh, you know I wanted them to be playing at the same time because I knew that they would listen to each other and feed off each other, and that their tones would be shaped based on each other. And and you just can't ever get that back once something gets recorded. That that both people reacting at the same time. You know, essentially when one person is overdubbing, you have this very rigid thing and the only option is for that person to conform to that. If you have two people doing something at the same time, they can be, you know, sort of listening to each other and reacting to each other in real time. And that's just different, you know, and I usually, I find that I get cooler things to happen when people are interacting Hmm. as opposed to just kind of chasing after a a pre-recorded track can get pretty laborious and like, like you said, to try to create the illusion of 
this all happened at one time is difficult, you know? And, um, yeah, I like to record as much stuff live as I can. And then, you know, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> what kind of things, even apart from the engineering side, would you say are good things for musicians to keep in mind when they're getting ready to do a project? You know, I mean, like, obviously, there's the choice of where they're going to work, what kind of gear, what kind of engineer. But what are things they can do on their own side that can make the record come out better? I think that they can have a clear vision of what they want it to be. And um, they can re rehearse a lot and really know what they're going to do as much as possible coming in and be very familiar with all aspects of the music, you know, when they come in, just, just like doing your homework, I guess. I feel like those are really the most important things. You know, my job is, is to make it sound cool and to help them sort of maybe make some decisions that they're not seeing because they're kind of have the blinders of being inside of it so much on, you know? Um, but I think just, just knowing the songs, knowing what you want. I mean, knowing what you want is so important. When you're an engineer, you just want to know what they want. And, and if they can just say, I want this and clearly articulate that to you, then it makes your job so much easier. It's, it's the ones where it's just like, they don't know how to say what they want, or maybe they hadn't even really thought about what they want. They just know that they want to record something and document it. And, you know, that, and then you're doing something and, and they're like, eh, I don't know. And then you're like, well, what do you want? And they're like, well, I don't really know. And it's just like, well, that, I'm on an island there. You know what I mean? What <laughs> Great. Do, we're, how, we're all disappointed. Now. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do I, how do I react to that? So, yeah, I think just having that clear, the, the vision is really the most important thing. You know, the best artists that I work with are really prepared. They practice all the time and they have a vision of what they want their project to be. What's up next for you? What do you got coming up? Uh, well, I'm working on a record right now with uh, this guy, Matt Eulery, who's a fantastic, um, he's a composer and a jazz musician and a rock musician. And, uh, uh, this one we've done, this is the guy I was telling you about that I've done. I think this is like my eighth or something record with him. I can't even remember. Um, this one is very, uh, it's classical sort of chamber music plus I call it. Um, it's beautiful sort of orchestral arrangements. I'm really excited about it. It's, it's, it's an amazing piece of work. And tonight we're recording a horn quintet in a hall. Wow. Yeah, it should be fun, but I got to lug some gear out on location. <laughs> um, and uh, let's see, I've just finished up um, an album with a guy named Stu Mindeman, a great piano player from Chicago. Um, he recorded some of it in South America and he worked with several different singers, um, including uh, Kurt Elling, who's a great jazz singer from Chicago, and a couple South American, female South American singers who were amazing. And I uh, just finished up a record with a guy named Marquise Hill, who's a great trumpet player from New York. Um, working on a record with uh, Hood Smoke, great Chicago band. This is, I think, our fourth record that we've done. And working on my record, and I think I'm going to do another Davey Knowles record this year at some point. He's a super busy guy. He's, like, touring all over the world now, so it's really hard to, like, get it together. But I know that he's got songs and he wants to do more recording. And... Um, yeah, that's all I can really think of offhand, but there's <laughs> there's always like, you know, I feel like I'm always juggling somewhere between five and ten things. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great, man. Thanks so much for uh, taking some time with me here, and, and uh look forward to next time we work together. Yeah, me too. Thanks, right. Ian. I really appreciate it. 
For more on Anthony, check out anthonygravino.com. You've been listening to Electricians and Mad Men. Today's interview was recorded at the Drake in Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music was written and performed by Brian Koenigsnecht. For show notes, links, and more episodes, visit electriciansandmadmen.com. I'm Ian Gorman of La Luna Recording and Sound. Thanks for listening.